Our message this morning will be from the book of Mark, chapter number 10. Mark, chapter number 10. We'll be looking at verses 35 to 45 this morning. Well, last Christmas, as every Christmas, our boys were excited for Christmas, as you know kids are. And last Christmas, we bought a brand new pre-lit Christmas tree. Hey. Boys were super excited, ambitious for Christmas, right? Zealous to, to tear open that box, zealous for the holiday spirit. And that's exactly what they did. They, they tore open that box. Problem was, I was not necessarily paying attention as well as I should have been. I was working on something else. And they began to cut some of those, the string and plastic wraps that were around the Christmas tree branches. We got it together, and we plugged it all in, and it was great. Lights are turning on until one of the sections didn't work. I thought to myself, what a piece of junk. A brand new Christmas tree, and part of the section, it doesn't even work. The lights don't turn on. So you know how you do it. You fiddle with the lights, and you look around, you make sure everything's in there, and then I realized what happened. And the boy's ambition to open the tree, they cut some of the light wires. Man, their ambition was so sweet. But you know what? They had no clue what they were doing. Their ambition to help was amazing. But it wasn't guided by, by the knowledge of how to accomplish the job. In Mark chapter 10, we see something very similar to that. Another group of brothers, another set of brothers named James and John, who have this ambition to be great. A set of brothers who have an ambition for greatness but they lack the knowledge of what it really means to be great. They don't yet know how to be great, but they have the ambition for greatness. Let's read together Mark 10, verses 35 through 45, and then we'll break this down today in the message. Mark 10, 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called, to, called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. I'm going to break this down in three headings this morning that I hope are helpful for us might give you some, some hooks to hang your hat on, and that is greatness desired, greatness described, and greatness demonstrated. 
In verses 35 to 41, you see greatness desired. In verse 37, James and John come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, please allow us to be the ones that when you come into your kingdom, let us be the ones that get to sit one on your right hand and one on your left hand when you inaugurate your kingdom. Let us be those. We want to place a reservation on those seats right now. That whenever that happens, let us be the ones on the right and the left. Now, there's a parallel passage to this in Matthew chapter 20. And in Matthew 20, it tells us that it was actually James and John and their mother that came and made this request of Jesus. James and John are no idiots. You got something to ask, you get your mom involved. You let your mom do the dirty work for you, right? And so in, in Matthew 20, it tells us that the mother comes along and she also asks this question. It's from all of them. And what mom wouldn't want their sons to be elevated to a position of greatness. In the Matthew 20 account also, we see just before Matthew 20 in chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus had just told the apostles in chapter 19, 28 of Matthew that they would sit, when he inaugurates his kingdom, they would sit on thrones in his kingdom. So when Matthew and Mark come along and make this request, it's probably a reaction to that. They're saying, okay, Jesus has just given us a glimpse at his kingdom and he's going to allow us to rule in some way. So James and John are like, hey, if we're going to sit on thrones, let's angle for the best ones. Let's get the best seats that we can possibly get. And so they ask for the seats on the left hand and in the right hand of Jesus. Why those? Why those seats? Why the, why the right and the left seats? Well, one, it's about proximity. They're the seats closest to the king, Right? It's about prestige. If you're sitting next to the king, as the king increases in recognition, in authority, in power, guess who else does? Well, you do. You're right next to him. So it's about proximity. It's about prestige. It's also about power. Can you imagine being the right-hand man, as it were, of the king of the universe as he sits on his throne? The power that would come with being connected to the man sitting in the middle and you're sitting on the right and the left side? In James and John's ambition for greatness, they say, hey, Jesus, give us those seats. Those are the ones we want. And in verse 38, as you look at that in your Bibles, Jesus responds to them very bluntly, extremely bluntly. Verse 38, but Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. You don't know what you're asking. I don't know why is this. Three times in the book of Mark alone, Jesus has told the disciples about his coming death, his burial, his resurrection. He's told them, this is what's about to happen to me. And every time Jesus tells them, it happens three times, happens in Mark 8, verses 31 to 33, Mark 9, verses 30 to 32, and then the passage directly above this passage in Mark 10. Every time Jesus tells them those things, a short time later, he has to now correct them because they didn't understand what he was talking about. Look at verses 32 to 34 with me, Mark 10. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. As they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him 
and kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. Jesus has just told them what's going to happen in not too long. And he says, they're going to mock me. They're going to scourge me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to kill me. And then I will rise again. And you notice what happens immediately after that? James and John. Uh, can we have the best seats? We have no clue what's going on. They were only concerned, their ambition was only for a position of greatness. No idea about the type of kingdom that Jesus was setting up. No idea about their participation in it. All they wanted was a position of greatness. Jesus responds further in verse 38. He tells them, you do not know what you ask. And then he asks this question. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? That's kind of a unique way for Jesus to put it. The cup there, as we see in the Old Testament and New Testament, think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he says, let this cup pass from me. The cup being a reference to the suffering and the pouring out of God's wrath that Jesus was about to experience in his life. And why was he facing that? Because of sin, the disciples' sin, our sin. And he's about to face this suffering, this pouring out of God's wrath because of the sin. He basically is telling them, look, guys, before I am exalted as king forever, I first have to suffer. It's suffering first, then exaltation. And Jesus asked them basically in verse 38, are you able to go through what I am about to go through? cup, the baptism. Can you handle that? Because it will be intense. And notice James and John, verse 39, their naive response. We are able. We can do it. They had no clue what Jesus meant. And they proved it over and over. They had no idea what he would have to suffer. But in their macho bravado, they say, oh yeah, we got this. We can do it. They were so ambitious for power and greatness that they were blind to reality. Doesn't that sound a lot like people in our, in our world today? You ever heard really bad advice? Like, if you can dream it, you can do it. That's, that's ridiculous. But that's kind of what they're thinking. Hey, we've got this great idea, and oh yeah, Jesus, no problem, we can do it. Or, you know, maybe something like, well, you can do anything you set your mind to if you just believe in yourself. Isn't that ridiculous? But it's that kind of that macho bravado. It's the I can do it. I just kind of, kind of pull myself up and I just got to go for it. That's not ambition. That's blind ambition. It's not guided by knowledge, not guided by truth. There's, there's another contemporary here of James and John named Peter. You know who Peter is? We remember Peter. When he at the Last Supper, he tells Jesus, oh, even if I die with you, I will not deny you. Blind ambition. How did that go for Peter? Not very well. So James and John here at this point in verse 38, and this point in their life, and at this point in their following of Christ, they have this blind, selfish ambition. It's interesting, though, Jesus, in verse 39, gives them kind of a, a, a look into the future. And he basically says, you may have blind, selfish ambition now and think that you can conquer everything, 
yet you have no clue what you're about to go through. You have no clue what I'm about to go through, yet. Look what he says in verse 39. You will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. And what, is, what does Jesus mean here? He says that what you don't know is that someday you will suffer in a way very similar to my suffering. And was that true in James and John's life? We see in Acts chapter 12 that James was killed by King Herod. Why? Because of his attachment to Christ. We know from church history that the Apostle John, they tried to kill him. They couldn't. And they exile him to the Isle of Patmos. Both of them suffer greatly for the cause of Christ. But that was later in life, at a time that they were ready and prepared for it. Here, you can tell, they weren't ready. They weren't ready. It was blind, selfish ambition. Notice in verse 41. Verse 40, Jesus says, To give you the spot on my right hand and my left hand is not for me to give. That's for the Father. There's Jesus deferring his authority as the Son. But in verse 41, look at this. It says, when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Now somehow James and John and mom got Jesus off to the side, away from the other ten, and they, they kind of launched this question at him. Probably didn't want the others to overhear it. And the ten either overheard it or the discussion continued, and they found out what James and John were asking Jesus, and it says they were greatly displeased with James and John. How dare you guys ask Jesus that question? That's not the right time to ask that. That's not what you should be asking. That's not for you to say. Now, why, though? Why were the other ten so upset? Was it because they had a better spiritual understanding of Jesus and what he would have to go through? what he would do for them on, on, on behalf of the world, the sins of the world? Did they have an understanding that James and John didn't? No. You know why they were upset? Because they didn't ask the question first. That's the reason they're upset. James and John beat us to the question. We want those seats too. And they're the ones that ask the question first. How do we know this? Well, they all wanted positions of greatness and power. Go just one chapter before Mark 10. There are several instances in the Gospels where the disciples are arguing about which one of them would be the greatest. One of them is just one chapter prior. Mark 9, verse 33. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? So somewhere along the path there, the disciples were talking to each other, arguing about something. And Jesus asks him, obviously because he has no clue what they're talking about, no, because he wants to talk about it. It says, verse 34, they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. This was an ongoing problem for the disciples. Even to the point, Luke 22, verse 24, shows us that Jesus is sitting at the, the Last Supper. I mean, this is hours before he would be betrayed and condemned to die. And look what the disciples are talking about. Luke 22, 24. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. This was ongoing for them. They're angling for the top spots, the chief positions of greatness and power, was a continual problem for them. 
So when the ten come back to James and John and Jesus in Mark, 10, in Mark chapter 10, that's why Jesus responds to them in verse 42 to all of them. He doesn't just call out James and John. He calls out all of them because he knows it's a problem for all of them. Remember, the ten aren't upset because James and John shouldn't have asked the question. They're upset because they didn't get to ask the question first. And so Jesus responds to all of them in verse 42. But before we get there, we have to ask ourselves a question because what we've talked about so far kind of begs a question. And that is this. Is an ambition for greatness a bad desire? Is it inherently wrong to want to be great? We have to ask and answer that question for ourselves and think, okay, James and John here, were they wrong for wanting to be great? Dave Harvey in his book, Rescuing Ambition, calls ambition the instinctual motivation to aspire to things, to make something happen, to have an impact, to count for something in life. Anything wrong with that? No. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, the Apostle Paul tells us that if we are going to run in a race, we should run in a way in which we strive to do what? To win. If we're going to spend time running in a race, win. Run to win. And now he uses that in 1 Corinthians 9. He uses a competitive race as an illustration of the spiritual race that we run. And what he's saying is if you're going to run in a physical competitive race, run to win. If you're going to run the spiritual race for Christ, guess what? Run to win. There is nothing wrong with wanting to be great. I, I tell you the flip side of that, there is definitely something wrong with not wanting to be great. If that's the other alternative, then, then obviously not. There's, there's a phrase that's attributed to Michael Jordan. You've probably seen it either in ads or on apparel because Nike has taken it and, and made it something. And the, and the phrase is, strive for greatness. You seen that? Strive for greatness. Anything wrong with that? No. I tell you what, I like that a whole lot better than strive for okayness. Or strive, here, here's, here's a good one, strive for mediocrity. Isn't a whole lot better to strive to be great? So were the disciples wrong for wanting to be great? No. They were wrong by thinking that greatness was having a position of power. That's where they were wrong. They were not wrong for wanting to be great. They were wrong by thinking that greatness was having a position of power. In our scripture reading earlier, we saw Philippians 2 verse 3. It says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Do you notice that? Selfish ambition. Ambition is not an enemy. Selfish ambition for the wrong things is an enemy. And that's why Jesus, as we see this in verse 42 through 45, that's why Jesus does not squash their ambition to be great. He doesn't come along and say, how dare you want to be great. He doesn't squash their ambition to be great. What he does is he redirects their ambition towards how to truly be great. Notice that as we read these verses in just a second. He doesn't say you shouldn't want to be great. What he says is, here's how you become great. And those parents in the room know this. Because we have kids that have a ton of energy and a ton of ambition. 
And as parents, what do we try to do? We don't come along and try to squash that energy, squash that ambition. If they have an entrepreneurial spirit, we don't come along and say, well, don't do that. What we do is we come along and we say, let's take that energy, that ambition, and let's direct it towards what is good. You with me on that? We don't come along and smash it. We direct it towards what is true. We take scripture and we say, let's let scripture guide that ambition so that your talents and abilities and desires are used for what is good. And that's what Jesus does here in verse 42 and following. He says, here is how to be great. The disciples' problem was that James and John and the others as well, especially James and John here, their selfish ambition caused them to ask the wrong question. They come to Jesus and their question is, can we get a position of greatness? That's the wrong question. What question should they have asked? They should have come to Jesus and said, Jesus, how can we be great? See the difference? It's totally different. Jesus, how can we be great? And to give the disciples a little bit of credit, though, they may have asked the wrong question, but at least they asked the right person. Jesus. And Jesus, in his grace, gives them the right answer to the wrong question. You see that? That's the grace of Christ involved there in the disciples' lives. He gives them the right answer to the wrong question. And I want to think about this for a second as, as we ponder our ambitions for greatness, which in and of themselves are not wrong. We need to be careful that we are asking the right questions, but probably more important, we need to be careful that we are asking the right people. You don't ask Dr. Phil or Anderson Cooper or Lady Gaga how to be great. You know what their answer will be? Some sort of combination of believe in yourself and, and uh, dream big super fluff. That's what they'll say, something along those lines. You don't ask a plumber how to fix an outlet. And you don't ask the world how to be great. Who do you ask? You ask Christ. You come to Christ and you say, how can I be great? Because Jesus' answer is the answer that no one else will give you. Now, one other people will give you Jesus' answer. It is completely countercultural. No one else will respond in the way that Jesus does. And what he says here in 42 and following, he says this. How do you be great? He says you go up by going down. Hold on a second. How's that work? You go up. You increase in greatness when you go down. What does he mean? Let's look at verse 42. Here we see greatness described. That was greatness desired by the apostles, the disciples. Here's greatness described, verse 42 and following. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So here Jesus says in verse 42 that greatness in the world system is built on what? It's built on positions of prominence and domineering leadership. Do you see those phrases in verse 42? Rulers over, lord it over them, great ones, exercise authority. For the world, greatness is about getting to the top and staying at the top. It's all about power, position, prominence, and prestige. 
how do I get to the top? And Jesus comes along, and he, he ruins it for him. When James and John asked Jesus for a position of prominence in his kingdom, Jesus corrects them because they looked and sounded like the world's description of greatness. They said, how do we get to the top? And he said, no, 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 hold on. The, the disciples, James and John, they knew in order for us, to, for us to get to the top, what do we have to do? We got to get Jesus to the side, separated from the other 10, so we can beat them to the question. Because the, one of the ways we get to the top is to beat the other people to the top. That's how the world works. In verse 43, Jesus says this. Notice. He says in verse 42, the Gentiles lord it over them, they're rulers over them, they exercise authority over them. And then he says, yet, it shall not be so among you. He completely shifts their paradigm. He says, this is different now. No, 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 that's how the world does it, but that's not how followers of me become great. Greatness for one of my followers does not look like it does in the world. It's not about getting to the top and staying at the top. It's about something different. And Jesus comes and he says, we do not climb over people to rule over them. We don't demand that they bow down to our greatness. We do not stand on the backs of others to lift ourselves up. He says, no, we live by a different playbook. We live by a different set of rules. We live by a higher standard. We live as Christ lived. Which begs a question, and that is, how then does a follower of Jesus become great? And he answers that in verse 43. He says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. Jesus says, here's how you become great. He says, your ambition for greatness needs to become an ambition to serve. In verse 43 and 44, notice here, again, going back to our question we asked earlier, whoever desires, he says it two times, verse 43, whoever desires to become great, verse 44, whoever of you desires to be first. So Jesus, once again, is saying the desire to be great is not bad. He does not squash their desire for greatness. What he does now, he says, you want to be great in my kingdom? Here's how. And he directs them towards service. He says to go up in God's economy is to first go down and to serve. James and John, when they came to Jesus with that question, they asked Jesus for a position of greatness. In other words, they wanted a spot above everyone. But Jesus said, no, greatness in my kingdom is not a spot above everyone. It's a spot below everyone in service. We think to ourselves, James died early. He died in Acts chapter 12. John lived a little bit longer. I wonder if they ever figured it out. I wonder if James and John ever got it right. Did they ever come around to that, or were they always kind of this ambitious, gung-ho, do whatever they want to do? Remember, Jesus called them earlier the sons of thunder. There's a reason for that. Did James and John ever figure it out? Go to 1 John chapter 3 if you would. 1 John chapter 3. The same John that asked Jesus this wrong question in Mark 10 is the same Apostle John that much later in life writes in 1 John 3 and 4. And he says these words. Look at 1 John 3 verse 14. 
We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Does it sound like the Apostle John got it figured out eventually? It certainly does. He's saying now one of the proofs of our salvation is our love for each other. Our love, our service, our kindness, our support of other people. He had figured it out. You say, okay, well, let's, let's apply this to us today. What does... What does this loving and this serving look like for us? In a 21st century America, what does loving and serving each other look like? Romans chapter 12 gives us great insight in this. A few verses in Romans 12, verses 10 to 15. The Apostle Paul writes, he says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. I think Romans 12 is a great picture of what service looks like. Serving others, Jesus said, is what greatness looks like. We are not great by sitting on the backs of others. We are great when we carry others on our backs. That's what Jesus says. Serve. Service is the way to greatness. And then back in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we see greatness demonstrated. Greatness desired. Greatness described. In verse 45, we see greatness demonstrated. Jesus provides for us in just one verse kind of a a, a conglomeration of all that greatness and servanthood means. The greatest demonstration of servanthood the world has ever seen. Verse 45, Mark 10, says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many talking about himself, the Son of Man being a reference to himself. And do you notice that little word, even? Or even the Son of Man. Who who is the Son of Man? He's the King of the universe. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He's the highly exalted one. He's the one in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. He's the one to whom, as we read earlier in Philippians 2, he's the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Even he did not come to be served, but to serve. He served to the point of giving his own life for the salvation of those who hate him. And think about it. If the king of the universe, described in those ways that I just mentioned, if the king of the universe did not come to earth to sit on a throne and be served, how much more should we who are nothing like a king also humble ourselves 
and become obedient to the service that Christ powerfully demonstrates. If even Christ can do it, even the Son of Man who should sit on a throne and be served, if even He didn't come to be served, should we come and think that we should be served? Should we come as that or should we come as servants? We can only be great when our ambition for greatness becomes an ambition to serve. 77 years ago today, there was a, a poignant example of men who became great through service. Remember these men as part of the greatest generation. June 6, 1944 was what? D-Day. The day that Allied forces stormed the beaches of German-held Normandy, France. You think back to those men who stormed those beaches, not especially notable on their own, but through their active selfless service, some of them even giving up their own lives, they demonstrated to us service and they protected their countries and they liberated the world. Previously unknown men now immortalized in history for their service despite conditions that were severe. I think, well, when those, those first boats hit the beaches of Normandy 77 years ago, not one of those men on those boats knew their fate. They did not know what was about to befall them. They didn't know their fate, but they all knew their calling. And what was it? To serve. To serve. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have a high calling. And it's not a calling to positions of power and greatness, but a calling to humbly serve our Lord and Savior who gave so much for us. My prayer is that our selfish ambitions for greatness would truly become selfless ambitions to serve for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You pray with me? Lord, it is not.